Today we come to the end of our series on fear, and I hope it has become clear, even though it was an assumption at the beginning, that we live in a culture of fear. In conversations after the services, uh, it seems that each of us is becoming more and more aware of how pervasive fear is in our culture and what a significant part of our culture it's become. Consider just two examples that were brought to my attention by members of the congregation this past week. One of them is from the Atlantic, and it was published on Tuesday the 16th. I'd already gone to press before the events would happen in Boston. But let me just read to you the first paragraph of this article. Close your eyes and picture the scariest thing you can think of. Maybe it's a giant spider or a giant state-puffed marshmallow man or something that's not even giant at all. Well, whatever it is, I guarantee it's not nearly as scary as the real scariest thing in the world. That's long-term unemployment. Uh, granted, to be unemployed for a long time is, can be difficult and discouraging, but to call it the scariest thing in the world, I think, well, the, the, the author, I think, is trying to pander to our fears. Then the other thing that was brought to my attention was uh, a segment on NPR, and it's entitled Mining Books to Map Emotions Through a Century. And a group of British scholars, just on the lark, because Google has put so many books online uh, with the Gutenberg Project, decided that they, what they would do is they would follow and, and try to determine um, what kind of words were used over the past century. They began with a list of emotion words. So words for anger, for fear, for joy, sadness, disgust, and surprise. Let me read to you. Generally speaking, the usage of these commonly known emotion words has been in decline over the 20th century. We used words that express our emotions less in 2000 than we did 100 years earlier. There is one exception. The fear-related words started to increase just before the 1980s. So you're less likely to find words of joy, of surprise, anger, all of these in literature, both fiction and nonfiction. It's in a decline as we get to, toward 2000. But the words with fear, in fact, are on the increase. The question that we have tried to answer in this series is how are we to be God's people how are we to obey the most repeated command in Scripture, do not be afraid? How are we to be followers of Jesus in a culture of fear? And as this is the last in the series, I thought it might help us uh, to review a bit. As is my habit. We began by examining the roots of fear, biblical, political, and cultural. We saw that many people view emotion as uh, as fear as an emotion, making it an emotional issue. Others see it as an intellectual or mental issue. And there is something to both of these, as we saw. But we've also seen that fear is a moral issue. If we live in a culture of fear, what does all of this fear do to us? What kind of people do we become if we are fed a steady diet of dread? How does fear affect our moral lives? We've seen that fear itself is not evil. It is not a vice. It is not wrong necessarily to be afraid. 
But excessive or disordered fear can tempt us to vices rather than to virtues. And so we're more likely to be cowards, to rage, or to be violent than we are to show hospitality, to be peacemakers, or to be generous. Well, if it's a moral issue, then the ethical issue comes in. And when dealing with ethics, the first question is not what is right and what is wrong, um, but rather what is going on? What is the context? Where is it that we live? Before we can decide what is right and what is wrong, or how we are to obey God's commands, or to restrain from certain things, we need to ask ourselves, what is going on? In a culture of fear, what is going on is, we are in danger. Danger, Will Robinson. I mean, danger seems to surround us in this culture of fear. And as a result, we are tempted to make safety and self-preservation our highest goals. And so, I would say, in our society, safety has become one of the main virtues in the 21st century. What we find in our culture is a worldview that equates the good life with averting risk and self-limitation. Disordered or excessive fear has significant moral consequences. What it does is it creates what I've called shadow virtues, which are not really virtues at all. There's no, they're not. They're in fact vices. But we begin to think that these are virtues. So suspicion, as we saw, preemption and accumulation. And these, in fact, threaten hospitality, peacemaking and generosity. So what is the answer? Well, we've seen that fearlessness is not the answer. Thomas Aquinas, as we saw, argued that to be fearless uh, in order to become fearless, uh, we must do one of three things and none of them are good. The first is to have a lack of love. Because if we don't love something, then we don't fear losing it. And then through dullness of understanding, we don't realize that there is danger and therefore we are not afraid. Or through pride of soul. That is, in fact, we believe we are impervious to loss and therefore we are not afraid. Scott Bader Say in his book puts it this way, it is the security of detachment, the bliss of ignorance, and the pursuit of invulnerability. Fearlessness is not a virtue. It is, in fact, a vice. In order to be fearless, as Aquinas puts out, we must also be loveless. And you may recall that I mentioned that the Jedi ethic, as spelled out by Master Yoda, we should not love because if we love, that opens the door to fear and that leads to the dark side. Therefore, do not love and therefore you will not fear. Well, as those who are called to be followers of Jesus, can we accept this? Can we embrace an ethic that says that we are not to love one another? It hardly seems right. I've mentioned several times already disordered or excessive fear. What does that mean? Well, we spent an entire sermon on this. Fear can be disordered in one of two ways. Fearing what we should not fear or fearing as we should not fear. That is excessive fear. Disordered fear is fearing the things that we should not. And I don't know if you recall, and I'll go through this quickly, but I gave you a list of eight questions that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to the matter of fear. 
Is the thing you fear actually present or fast approaching? Or is it far off in terms of distance, time, or likelihood? Secondly, is the thing you fear really powerful and able to cause you harm? Or is it something that's generally small and harmless? Number three, is the thing you fear really a threat? Or does it just seem scary because it's strange? Four, are you afraid of losing something that is of real importance? Or is that something, a thing you really shouldn't be concerned about in the first place? Number five, do you fear so much that you're closing in on yourself or unjustly lashing out at others? Number six, does your fear keep you from doing things you know you should do? Number seven, does your fear take away the joy you feel in the presence of the things you love because you are afraid of losing them? And lastly, is your fear the result of someone's attempt to manipulate you? Is someone profiting from your fearfulness? I've mentioned this to several people already today, but I must just say, in light of what happened last Monday in Boston, I was just really struck that none of the news people that I heard were somehow trying to reassure me or to calm me down or to calm the audience down, but rather almost seemed that they enjoyed provoking fear in us. And so we have to keep watching them to find out if, if something really is there and something that I should really be afraid of. We need Fear is not wrong. It is not evil in and of itself. But when it becomes excessive or it is disordered, then we are in serious trouble. And then we considered three separate aspects um, that are tied or with regard to fear. Community, providence, and vulnerability. And let me review them quickly. In a culture that professes to long for community, we in fact prize the individual and individual achievement. If that's the case, is it any wonder that we are a culture of fear? Rather than standing together, shoulder to shoulder, being there as a support group, a safety net for each other, we stand alone as individuals. Well, yeah, it's, it's natural that we would be afraid. If we are to recover courageous living, we need a community that is capable of supporting it and sustaining it. See, courage is the capacity to do what is right and good in the face of fear. But how do we know if we're being courageous or just reckless and doing something foolish? Well, this is where the community comes in. One of the things that the Christian community, the church, can do for us is to provide a place where we can air these things and say, do you think I should do this? Am I being wise here? Am I being prudent? Or am I being reckless and foolish? It's a place of discernment. I don't have to make all the decisions on my own, but I listen to others, those who perhaps have gone through things that I'm about to go through. Fear is not wrong, but we need to be careful that we do not fear too little and therefore unnecessarily plunge into danger or fear too much that we end up doing nothing because we're paralyzed by our fear. The church is to be a community of shared risks and of shared resources. The second thing we looked at was providence. And I would say of all the things we studied in this series, this is the one that really seemed to stick with me. Um, We think of providence in a very different way than our brothers and sisters have in the past. We think of providence as being able to explain every single event that happens in my life. 
And we may think of providence as meaning I'm never going to hurt, I'm never going to have pain, I'm never going to have loss. My life is just going to go along swimmingly because God is going to provide for me in everything. In fact, in fact, providence is a story, God's story in human history, of which we are a part. And I may not see my part in the story right now, but that's okay, because it is God's story, and through his providence, he is taking care of us and providing what we need and redeeming who we are to be. I suggested when we looked at this, that rather than thinking in terms of propositions, in which we try to explain everything that happens to every person on this planet, that rather we think of God's presence and we think of God's story in human history. What we hear in Paul's writing to the Corinthians is that providence does not guarantee protection. As in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us a list of the things he had suffered. Providence instead assures us Of God's provision, he will make a way as we go on, and his redemption, he will restore what has been lost along the way. Then the third thing is vulnerability. In connection with providence, particularly in Paul's writings, um, where he writes, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, when I am weak, then I am strong. What we find in scripture is the paradoxical uh, reversal of strength and weakness. In doing so, what we find in scripture is that God's desire is to work through human vulnerability rather than to overcome it. I have to stop there. And when I went through this, I just thought of many of the times that I have prayed that I want God to intervene in a miraculous and a supernatural way to stop something from happening. And there have been times, in fact, when God has done that. But what we see in scripture oftentimes is that God works through weakness rather than through traditional or conventional notions of strength. When we seek to be strong, that in fact is when we are weak. It is only when we rely on God in our weakness that we find real strength. We see this, if nothing else, but supremely in the passion of Jesus Christ. The cross reveals the power of God through vulnerable love. As I said at that point, if this is the case, one might argue, what kind of security, what kind of comfort can I have in a culture of fear if God is dealing through, with us through vulnerability rather than through strength? I would remind you that God's providence brings us an assurance of provision and a promise of redemption. God is drawing history to its proper end, not in the way I think that we might imagine, through control or domination. But God entered into human history as a baby and then as someone who was put to death on the cross. Jesus reveals to us a God who refuses to make the world right by violently enforcing the good. Last Sunday, we looked at one of the risks that we may incur if we say, okay, I will not engage in excessive or disordered fear, therefore I will be a generous person. I will practice generosity. 
Well, as we saw last week, to do so is to engage in a risky practice. It is risky to be generous. Particularly in our culture, which values accumulation. You need to get as much as you can so that you will be safe and secure. The whole idea that I, in fact, am to give to others, I am to be generous and open-handed with others, sounds almost foolish, certainly sounds like a risk. I would just mention one thing from last week's sermon. And that is how Jesus is heard in the parable of the rich fool. This is what God calls him. Jesus' attitude as he tells the story about the man is not one of disdain or even condemnation, but of compassion. We make a serious mistake if we hear the parable of the rich fool as a story of judgment, as if it implied that God goes around killing all the rich people on the planet, those who want to build bigger barns. No, it is a story of compassion of this poor, poor man who thought that with many possessions he would secure his future. Because that very night he died. And then the things that he had, who did they belong to? This poor man unfortunately thought that his life consisted of the abundance of possessions. If we are to be followers of Jesus, we are to embrace an ethic of risk. We are to be as radically generous as God has been. We are to trust that God will provide for us. Today, as we come to the end of the series, I want to examine another risky practice, and that is hospitality. The risk of hospitality. Both of these require trust in God's providence. Bader Say writes this, I am convinced that trust in God's providence makes possible the development of the virtues, such as courage, hope, and patience, that are necessary to negotiate a broken and sometimes dangerous world in ways that are expansive, life-giving, and even a bit risky. Just mentioned that the ethic of security produces a skewed moral vision. It promotes promotes virtues such as suspicion or preemption or accumulation because they make us feel safe. They make us feel protected. But as followers of Jesus, we must see them for what they are. Vices that masquerade as virtues. They cannot... Suspicion cannot be a virtue or preemption or accumulation because they do not point in the direction of the true good, love of God and love of one's neighbor. In fact, they turn us in the opposite direction. They tempt us to love safety more than we love God and certainly more than we love our neighbor. To the extent that suspicion becomes a virtue or is seen as a virtue, hospitality begins to fade. Consider when and where we live. I got this from the internet. The nationwide If You See Something, Say Something public awareness campaign, by the way, it's trademarked. It's, 
if you see something, say something, public awareness campaign is a simple and effective program to raise public awareness of indicators of terrorism and terrorism-related crime and to emphasize the importance of reporting suspicious activity to the proper local enforcement authorities. We saw earlier in this series that children are taught, don't talk to strangers. And of course, we want to protect our children. But do we want to teach them to identify a stranger as danger? Every person that they do not know is suddenly a dangerous person. We don't want them talking to strangers. But we should want them to learn that hospitality and generosity are virtues. And that to welcome a stranger, we are told, is the same as welcoming Jesus Christ himself. But in a culture of fear, suspicion is a virtue and that we assume that we are always at risk. And so we must always look at others as potential threats. Safety is promoted through fear. You'll be safe if you are fearful. In this culture especially, but I think others as well, to show hospitality is seen as dangerous and risky business. There is a paradox as we begin looking at this that we must consider. And that is the place of community. I've said that we must have community in order to overcome fear, to be courageous so that fear does not possess us, excessive and disordered fear. Community is important. We learn courage from the community. And yet, ironically, the community may in fact become a substitute. It may become a place of security for us. And so rather than being generous and hospitable to others who are outside, community sort of closes the wagons, you know, we circle the wagons and close, and we don't let anybody in. We do need community. We need one another. We need others with whom we can share our fears, with whom we can pool our resources, and with whom we can sustain our courage. But if we buy into the idol of security and safety, we then may begin to think of our community as the place of safety and we don't want anyone new coming in. It's just human nature. As members of a community, we may become comfortable with one another. But whenever any, you know, we, we reach a certain equilibrium, but then when someone new comes in, then it's like that, that equilibrium is sort of thrown off a bit. One writer put it this way. Strangers are unsafety incarnate. And so they embody the insecurity which haunts your life. In a fearful world where community means security, hospitality will not be prized as a virtue because it is risky. Risk is involved. And yet I am convinced that community is the key to hospitality. Just think about this. In a culture that promotes suspicion of the stranger as a patriotic act, we are patriots when we are suspicious of strangers, in which for us as Christians, the community may become a place of safety against non-Christians or non-members, how are we to develop the virtue of hospitality? 
the deck seems stacked against us. I think we can find guidance from three sources in scripture. The first is the early church, as found in the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts in the Bible study at Coburn. And what we see is a story of expanding hospitality. It begins with 120 people in the upper room. And then on the day of Pentecost, the church sort of explodes and 3,000 are converted. And we read all the believers had were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. From 120, it goes beyond 3,000 rather quickly. And what we see is generosity and hospitality that is practiced. In chapter 4, we are told there were no needy persons among them. But all the followers of Jesus at this point are all Jewish. And most of them are in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, things begin to change. Philip, one of the seven, goes to Samaria and preaches to the Samaritans. They believe on Jesus. And then the Spirit takes him and he speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch, someone from Africa. And he is baptized into the community of believers. In chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and preached to him and his household and his friends the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, we see that the church in Antioch, Syria, that there some of the believers began to speak not only to Jews, but to Greeks as well. So that that circle of hospitality is being stretched to now not or to include those who are not Jews. The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to Antioch to check this out. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So it would seem that the community of Jewish believers Suddenly the boundaries are broken down, the borders are broken down, and now non-Jews are being brought into the church. Not everyone is happy about this. And in Acts chapter 15, we have the, the council in Jerusalem. It was exciting that Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, that they saw Jesus as the Messiah. But there were some in that group who said, Yeah, but they're different from us. We want them to be more like us. We want them to keep the rules. We want them to keep the laws of the Old Testament. So we read in Acts 15, Then some of the believers, so they are believers, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Simply put, we're going to be hospitable. They can join, but they have to be like us. Yes, we'll let them in. We will show hospitality. But they can't be different. They have to be like us. We are Gentiles here today. So I think it is hard for us to appreciate the problem here. Luke is careful to tell us that those who wanted the Gentiles to become like Jews were in fact Christians themselves. They, they were concerned that if you let non-Jews in and they get to stay the way they are, 
what is going to happen? What is our community going to look like? And how are we going to keep our identity? To allow Gentiles into the church without requiring that they live like Jews was a huge, was a huge risk. But the church took the risk, opening the doors and their arms and their hearts to their Gentile brothers and sisters. Now, if you think about this, for us, it's history. I mean, it happened hundreds of years ago and we're Gentiles, we're here. But, But consider, as a result of what they decided in Acts 15, the boundaries or the borders get a little fuzzy. Who is in and who is out is not as clear as it used to be. It used to be, we knew who was in the church because they were Jewish. And if you're a Gentile, obviously you're not part of the church because only Jews are in the church. Now if you let Gentiles in, how are we going to know if they're in or if they're out? It also means that the boundaries or the borders keep getting redrawn. That today it may be here and then tomorrow it may be way over there. That the makeup of the church and the identity of the church, in fact, changes over time. The matter of identity may not be as clear. Being hospitable means welcoming people into something, but that something is always to be in process. It's a risky proposition. Let me read to you what one writer wrote about this. Part of the difficulty in recovering hospitality is connected with our uncertainty about community and particular identity. Hosts value their place, in quotation marks, and are willing to share. Strangers desire welcome into places that contain a rich life of meaning and relationships. By welcoming strangers, however, the community's identity is always being challenged and revised, if only slightly. While this is often enriching, it can occasionally stretch a place beyond recognition. One of the frustrations I face as the pastor of the church on Melrose is that oftentimes when people leave this church, I ask them when I run across them, when they come to visit, so have you found a church? No, we haven't. We haven't been going to church because we can't find a church like the church on Melrose. And I say, well, of course you cannot. Because as each person comes into this congregation, we change a bit. I think we would prefer that the church on Melrose would have a very specific identity. And if you want to come in, fine. And if you don't, fine. But this is who we are. I don't think that's biblical. I think as every person comes into the congregation, we change a bit. We are not the same congregation today that we were five years ago or ten years ago, certainly not 35 years ago when I first came. Hospitality is risky. And as I was thinking through this, man, if there were any Jews who could have lived for four or five hundred years, I I think they said, boy, we shouldn't have let those Gentiles in. Because the church became one of the main persecutors of the Jewish people. The church became sort of a hotbed of anti-Semitism. I shouldn't let those people in. Hospitality involves risk. And it involves change. But we are not to be afraid. 
We are not allow, to allow fear to dictate to us to say, listen, I'm sorry, you cannot come in because you are not like us. So we learn from the early church the risk of hospitality, and yet the early church took that risk time and time again. It wasn't always easy. Some people were very uncomfortable with it, but they did it anyway. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think we can learn uh, that can guide us with regard to hospitality is what we find in our text today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in which Paul describes the church, the community, as the body of Christ, one body with many members. We have one spirit with many gifts. It's fascinating that we find this passage in 1 Corinthians because Paul is writing to a dysfunctional church, a church that has real issues and real problems. So if you look beginning in verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, or in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. As the people of God, we are the body of Christ. And we cannot say to someone who comes in, I'm sorry, we can't accept you because if you come in, you will change the dynamic. You will change our identity. This is a risk we have to take in hospitality. This is a passage, and the reason I read it is because I think this is usually what people think of when they think of the community as a body and that we're different parts and, and you know, we all belong together. Um, but I see Paul saying this actually earlier in chapter 10 and chapter 11. For example, in chapter 10, when he writes about the Lord's Supper, he does something in chapter 10 he doesn't do anywhere else. We don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. That is, he begins with the cup, and then he does the bread. If you look at all of the other examples, Jesus first broke bread, and then later at the end of the meal, he offered the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. I think Paul does what he does for a reason. The cup speaks of our union, our relationship with Jesus Christ. In a new covenant, we are in relationship with God. And because of the cup, then we can eat the bread. And the bread represents the body of Christ. And the church is referred to as the body of Christ. In chapter 12, Paul will say there is one spirit. Here in chapter 10, he speaks of the blood of the new covenant. In Christ, there is one, and we who are many make up the body of Christ. So he says in verse 17 of chapter 10, one loaf, one body, and then one loaf. 
And then in chapter 11, after the passage that I usually read uh, before we have communion, Paul goes on to say, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. The body of Christ, that's us. The members of the congregation. We need to recognize that there is risk in opening our doors, our lives, our hearts. Things will be different, but that's okay. There's still to be unity, even though we are different. And this leads us to the third thing that I think will help us with regard to hospitality. And I think it is an appropriate way to end our series on fear. The pattern of the three-in-one life of God who is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Different, yet the same. As we saw when we began the series on the theology of food, the three persons of the Trinity do not exist in isolation from each other, each claiming for themselves their own sphere of power and influence. Rather, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist with each other in radical equality. And this is what is to be mirrored in the church. There is to be a mutual indwelling. This is the heart. This is at the heart of true reality. Any living creature that thinks they can, well, first of all, that they came to be on their own, sadly mistaken, or to think that they can sustain themselves on their own, are equally wrong. We, in fact, need each other. And the unity that we see in the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit, not I'm going to be independent and this is my sphere of influence, but this radical equality and mutual indwelling is what we are to see in the church as well. Trinitarian creation means that life is founded upon an unending sharing and receiving of each other. A perpetual making room within ourselves for others to be. That's what God is. That is who we are to be as those who reflect who God is. So hospitality to the stranger, not only uh, enacts not only the church's self-description of a body with many different parts, but it's also a reflection of the nature of the triune God. It is risky to show hospitality, but we should not let fear inhibit us or stop us from doing what is good. Hospitality goes beyond a warm welcome, shaking somebody's hand or embracing them, or table fellowship, though these are in fact quite important. It also includes an openness to hear the story of someone else and to receive wisdom from a stranger. It was some time ago that John recommended that we begin our service with one of the odes of Solomon. This morning Ben sang, and then we responded. He sang the words, Because the Lord is my salvation, and we responded, I will not fear. Because my confidence is in you, I will not fear. Because you are with me, I will not fear.
We live in a culture of fear. But we should not, by God's grace, allow a disordered or excessive fear to shape us. To determine what course of action we will take. But rather, we are to be followers of Jesus. And trust that God will do what is needed in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, all things being equal, we'd rather not take risks. We'd rather, we want to know what the outcome is going to be. We don't want things to be uncertain, unpredictable. And when we find something we like, we so easily get comfortable. And the notion that it's going to change is distasteful to us. But help us to see that this is what you've called us to, to be your people here in this society. To welcome strangers and to know that with each new person coming in, things will change. We won't be exactly the same. By your grace, may we not allow fear to stop us from doing what we should. May fear not stop us from being generous. May it not hinder us from being hospitable. May we, by your grace, like your people in the early church, show hospitality. May we take to heart what Paul has written, that we actually belong to the same body, one spirit, but different parts. And may we recognize that we are to reflect who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. I thank you for this series that we've gone through. I pray that by your grace we've learned something from it. More than that, that it would change the way that we live. That we would not be governed by fear, dictated to by fear. I would trust in your providence, your provision, and your promise of redemption. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.